Hey everyone, you're listening to the Climbing Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Horgan. This show brings you advocates from across the country to speak about their experiences and advocacy work that happens beyond the crag. This includes climbing advocates that work on a local scale, policy professionals, athletes, and all others in between that have a deep love for the climbing environment. My aim is to connect more climbers to the work that these advocates do and inspire everyone that no matter how big or small, they have an opportunity to get involved and do their part. This show is brought to you in partnership with Access Fund. For nearly 30 years, Access Fund has been the organization that has kept our beloved climbing resources conserved and cared for. From stewardship to influencing climbing policy and educating current and new climbers on the best responsible behavior, Access Fund is on it. As they say, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interests represented. Support Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org and by supporting your local climbing organization. The show is also supported by Gnarly Nutrition. We want to thank Gnarly Nutrition for being a supporter of Access Fund and the Climbing Advocate Podcast. Gnarly Nutrition and its employees recognize that it is a privilege to visit and recreate in outdoor spaces. They believe that these spaces should be protected and safe for all to recreate in. Gnarly Nutrition. Want more. Do more. Be more. Hey, welcome everyone to the latest installment of the Climbing Advocate Podcast, episode number 24. My guest today is Graham Zimmerman. But before we jump into the conversation with Graham, got a couple orders of business to take care of first. As you may have noticed, we have our first supporter, our first sponsor of the show, Gnarly Nutrition. I am so excited to have this brand, these folks supporting the show, they are more than just a nutrition company. You know, at the end of the day, they do sell nutritional products for athletes, including climbers. But for me, I definitely took notice to their branding and marketing right away that they ver- that they care very deeply about the outdoor spaces that their athletes and all of us use to better ourselves. And I could not be more excited to have them on as supporters of the show. So thank you all at Nerdly Nutrition for supporting the podcast. Really, really appreciate it. Item number two is Access Fund's Climbing Advocacy Conference is coming up here in a couple of weeks on the weekend of November 14th and 15th. It is planned in partnership with the Climbing Initiative. And spoiler alert, I don't want to give too much away, but there may or may not be a conversation coming up here very soon on the show with the folks at the Climbing Initiative. Very excited to have them on and talk about what they got going on over there. But for the conference, it is all virtual this year, as you could probably guess, which is a good thing and, and you know, it has its limitations as well. But, you know, having I go to this conference every year and having that face-to-face interaction with folks is always very beneficial, very awesome. But this, this uh, virtual conference this year opens the doors to having international guests, which Access Fund jumped on. And so we'll be able to hear workshops and panels with international climbers and learn about what's going on more globally uh, in, the cli- in the climbing advocacy world in this field. So that's definitely a great opportunity to engage more folks having it virtual. So that's the plus side. So as, as it is every year, it'll be chock full of great workshops, panels. It's free. So jump on accessfund.org, find the link to register. It's open to everyone. And again, it's November 14th and 15th. And one really cool component that I was reading in the agenda this year is 
on the evening of November 14th from 6 to 7.30 Mountain Time. They're going to be showing some select films from the Mountain Film Tour, which is the Mountain Film Festival, excuse me, that's usually based in Telluride every year. So getting a glimpse into those films that evening is going to be a super cool component to this year's conference. So as I always say, don't miss out. Going to be an awesome time. One more time, it's free to register November 14th and 15th. I'll see you all there. All right, let's jump into Graham here. Graham needs little introduction, but if living under her rock is your preferred place to be, preferred place to live in, let's introduce him just a little bit here. Graham is a professional alpinist, filmmaker, and dedicated climate advocate. He is one smart dude with a background in glacial hydrology and geomorphology. I mean, I'm impressed that I can even pronounce that correctly, let alone have a degree in it. So he's a yeah, very intelligent guy with extensive climbing experience, uh, climbing some of those most impressive alpine peaks that we have to offer across the globe. And having the scientific mind and spending a ton of time in glaciated areas around the globe those red flags of a changing environment started to rear its ugly head and Graham took notice. This prompted to him to level up his game and look beyond just climbing. And I've been wanting to have Graham on the show here for about a year now since we kind of brushed shoulders last year at Access Fund's Climbing Advocacy Summit last year in Seattle. It's, it was a very timely conversation as the election is just a few days away. And we went through a few topics. Of course, we, we start off with his path down the advocacy road, how he got started, what inspired him to get started. And we talk about the, win, the wins that we've had over the past year or so and what has made those successful. And of course, voting. He has used his platforms, his social media platforms to engage as many people as possible to vote in this year's election been really impressive and really creative we spent a good amount of time talking about that so if you have mailed in that ballot have dropped by your local ballot box you will be making Graham proud make me, me proud he'd be really really stoked to hear that and Graham's approach to advocacy his advocacy efforts are rooted in this theme of imperfect advocacy being an imperfect advocate because we're all imperfect advocates and Despite all that, we all have stories to share, and he believes, I believe, that we are perfect fits to advocate for the environment and our outdoor spaces. And I've been thinking about this notion for a while now. It's like, man, just such perfection is demanded of anyone that loves the environment and wants to see change for the better. But we're, you know, we're, we're not, we're not perfect. We're expected to be perfect, and and if you're not. You're, you're considered a hypocrite, right? But Graham believes in this so much of being an imperfect advocate. He made a short film about it. It came out a couple weeks ago. This episode was recorded prior to the release of the film. But if you haven't seen it yet, it's a, like a 15, 16 minute short film. Check it out. It's super cool. It's super inspiring. I, I was ready to run through a brick wall at the end of it. Just like, let's get this advocacy train going. I was super psyched, and I think everyone listening will be psyched on it as well. You can find it on YouTube, which is YouTube, Imperfect Advocate, and it'll come up. It was made with his good buddy and some other folks from Bedrock Films, his filmmaking company. It's awesome. Go check it out. And if you didn't know, 
Graham won a Pilaue d'Or, which is essentially the gold medal of climbing for him, for his and his team's ascent of Lake Sar in the Pakistani Karakoram last summer. And they were awarded this uh, grandioso award. They couldn't go to the conference this year, of course, but, or sorry, the presentation, you know, this year, of course, to be a, given this award, but it's a very proud achievement. And so congratulations to Graham and his team. And if I, if I, if I got, if I can say it, I think he deserves another peel away day or of sorts, another award, a trophy, a holiday or something for his advocacy efforts. Cause they're nothing short of, of impressive. So let's dive in. I'm super excited to bring you this conversation with Graham Zimmerman. Enjoy. Yeah, for sure. Wow. Oh boy. Well, how, how's the rest of the year been for you besides this? This year has been, uh, this year has been unique and eventful. And I've been, I've been telling people that the year has been terrible for business, great for my marriage, pretty, pretty miserable for my climbing. Um, at least for actually going climbing, my fitness is kind of through the roof, which is great. I just need to <laughs> be able to go utilize it. And exactly. it has been, it has been really good for my advocacy, uh, kind of policy work though, just because I've had more time to dedicate towards it. And to be honest, there's, there's a lot, a lot of motivation right now. So, so I would say that unequivocally 2020 has been a very challenging year, but, but, uh, but having time, having less, less time spent traveling, less time at events has, you know, I've, I feel like I've managed to, to utilize that kind of gift of time pretty, pretty effectively to, to try to, you know, make, make myself a healthier, happier person. My, my wife and I have, it's, it's been pretty effective and to try to figure out what's going on in the world. Good, for sure. Did you have anything uh, on the on the list go do objective wise this summer? You know, so I I go on a big expedition every other summer. Um, that's every other. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of a multi you know big multi month expedition generally to the to the Karakoram in Pakistan, and mm-hmm. that's that's kind of a deal that I have with my wife that she gets every other summer, and it's been a pretty pretty cool way to kind of build this whole climbing. Or, or kind of expedition alpine climbing thing into a you know to the rest of my life in a, a seemingly sustainable way and uh, and so I didn't have a big trip planned for the summer I did have some smaller things planned that I had to bail on but um, I think that my perspective on the summer would be very different if I had been planning a Pakistan trip that I had to that I had to cancel so I'm I'm really really thankful for that of course well I don't want to overlook uh, your great grand award that you won this year uh it'd be rude of me to not bring that up you know we're going to talk a lot about advocacy today of course but i i definitely wanted to jump in this just a little bit before we get started the pilo de or is that how you pronounce it I think, yeah pila de or the golden the golden ice PLA. axe the golden ice axe exactly that's so awesome um i'm about as far away as possible that you could possibly be of being an alpinist and i of course uh know that know that the route you guys did was a big deal uh, but you could could you tell us a little bit more about it before we dive into the meat of our conversation here like what was it where was it who'd you do it with and how did you land on this objective yeah um those are all those are all great great questions and um so let's see so last last summer um was a on summer for me for expedition climbing. And I spent 
two and a half months in the Pakistani Karakoram, which is an area where I've been spending more and more time. Um, I'm pretty, pretty enamored with that range and, and have, have been honestly for a long time because there are so many amazing objectives and it's kind of this, it's really cool combination of the highest mountains in the world. It's not particularly snowy. It doesn't get uh, as much effect from the monsoon. So you can actually go climb there during the summer, which, which means you can climb there when it's warm, which is really nice. And, uh, and then it's primarily composed of granite. So you're looking at really steep, steep faces on good rock during a warmer time of year on the biggest mountains in the world, which for me is kind of the perfect combination and uh and you combine that with the fact that there is a lot that hasn't been done there and so uh as we look at things that have not been done there a lot of that is due to the conflict between pakistan and india and this kind of uh this area along the border there that uh is kind of kind of oscillates between open and closed depending on the year and depending on the uh depending on the attitude of the Indian or Indian authorities or the Pakistani authorities. And so there's this peak that's there in kind of the thick of that zone um, called Linksar, which sits between uh, the K6 group and the K7 group. So it's there's one side of it that's on the Charakusa and then another side that's on the uh, on the Kabiri glacier, glacier, which is kind of part of the Condus glacier complex. And it's it's really been one of the great unclimbed objectives in the world for 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 a long for a long time now, um, it was originally attempted back in the back in the sixties and seventies. Um, I should have these dates memorized, but there was a German team and a Japanese team that both went in there um, back back before the Karakoram closed, um, and then and then that area shut down for many years, and then it was attempted by a number of British teams from the west so from the charcusa and then attempted another four or five times from from the condis kind of as that was made available and uh steve swenson one of my partners was one of the primary people attempting it and i guess i guess i can be on that list too since i've gone on two expeditions to try it and and it's this just amazing peak that is steep has huge relief is you know, kind of one of those, one of those really amazing mountains where the easiest route to climb the peak is something really technical. And then, you know, it's, it's this peak that is very complex as well, not only in terms of dealing with the bureaucracy to get to it, but also the, the route itself is not something you just kind of look up and you can see where to go. There's a lot of hazard. There's a lot of, there's a lot of kind of like layering as you look at the mountain. So actually determining the best way to go, the best way to strategically get at the peak and all of that required, required a lot of experience and a lot of discussion and a lot of, um, I mean, a lot of time and a lot of attempts. So, um, the, the, that all culminated in us making the first ascent of that peak last summer. Um, it was my second, second summer trying it. Um, and I was there with, Chris Wright, who's another younger climber, uh, we're about the same age, both in our mid thirties and he and I have climbed hard routes all over the place. Um, and then, uh, and then we were there with Steve Swenson and Mark Ritchie who are both in their sixties and are, are two of the kind of, uh, kind of sages of the, of the Alpine climbing scene in America. And so it was this really mm-hmm. cool combination of these two kind of old guys who are both very strong, but have, you know, but are not as strong as, you know, 
two two guys kind of at the height of their powers in their in their 30s but they have immense experience so we were able to lean into their experience in terms of strategy for how to climb these things well chris and i were primarily responsible for for leading the route and it kind of resulted in this perfect combination of of this team that worked super well together and was very multifaceted and multi-generational on this objective that required each of those skill sets and all of that knowledge. And it just kind of came together into this perfect, this perfect summer of trying this thing. And it was, uh, it was really special. And so for that climb, we're being honored with the PLA Dior, which is the, the golden, golden ice axe or, <clears throat> kind of the uh, kind of the gold medal of of alpinism and so they're right. giving giving it to us this year which is which is really fun oh man congratulations that's that's what that's awesome thanks man i i really appreciate that it's it's kind of a fun little spot of good news amongst all the all the other absolutely yeah did this kind of come out of left field or did you guys get done with the objective and like whoa that this is a kind of a big deal. And I know you didn't go up to, go into it with the uh, motivation to like, we can win an award for this, but like in hindsight, looking back, like, wow, yeah, totally. That was worth it. I mean, it's in terms of, in terms of the award, I try not to think about that stuff very often just because for sure. I, well, there's a whole, there's a whole, there's a whole gaggle of things that we can get into there about climbing for accolades <laughs> versus climbing for yourself. But I've been climbing for a long time. I've done a lot of things that people have considered significant for whatever reason. This one felt super significant to me. And not only because of the objective itself, which was really a profound thing to go try and get done, but also just because of the overall experience and the partnership, which were more important than just about anything. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so uh, I guess it didn't come out of nowhere. This one felt like a big deal for me personally. And so to to get that email about the PLA was like, well, that's that's sweet. Somebody else thinks this is a big deal too. That's cool. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, yeah, yeah, man. It's a lot of it's a lot of fun. Yeah, don't they usually host like a an award ceremony of sorts? Given this year, they're not going to do that. Is that is that right? Yeah. So uh, they 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 host a big award ceremony. Um, for many years, it was in Chamonix, and um, and I was I was a finalist for the award back in. 2013 or 14 and so i've i've been to the ceremony before when it was a chamonix these days it's in in poland and okay. they're actually having the ceremony but uh you know as i'm sure you're aware we as americans are persona non grata in most of the yes. world right now due to our right. due to our response to covid and so we will be joining virtually which is um which is really too bad. It would be it would be very fun to be there, and it's and it's uh it's pretty it's pretty interesting and and maybe a good segue into policy to be sitting here having you know received a you know essentially a gold medal for the sport that I've you know been practicing for the last twenty years, and mm-hmm. uh, and because of our administration's miserable response to the pandemic, I'm sitting you know sitting at home, and because of our uh, because of our management of our climate and our forests, I'm sitting under a giant cloud of uh, 
of of wildfire smoke so it's it's all feeling yeah it's all feeling very present <laughs> yes well that, that is a great segue uh, we we kind of brushed shoulders a little bit in seattle last year at the access funds uh, advocate summit but mm -hmm. we didn't get a chance to chat and i, I attended your uh, panel on climate and everything and i was like i really want to get graham on the show so i'm glad we finally came together here about a year later <laughs> well i'm i'm honored to be here this is really cool Thank you so much. Um, well, I kind of got the conversation broken up into three parts. And at the beginning of each part, I have a quote that I pulled from a, a few of your recent social media posts, because your posts have been so good and so unique and creative recently. We'll get more into your social media efforts here at the end. But I found a few things that will align well with each one of our topics here. Great. So diving into the first one, the first quote I have is, mountains have been my primary driver to be a better, to be a better and stronger person. They've also led me to advocacy. And with you having a science background and, of course, your extensive experience in the mountains, I'm sure being a proponent of a, of a healthy environment has been, been with you for a while, whether it was consciously or subconsciously. So where did this all begin for you? Where did your path down advocacy begin? That's, that's a great question. And, you know, I think that for me, my, uh, my, I, would, I would go as far as to say my adult life really um, – has, has, has been totally saturated with a love for mountains. And since I was, I first, I first discovered climbing when I was about 15, uh, when I was 18 and I moved off to, uh, to New Zealand for university, which was actually where I was born. So it was really easy for me to go back down there for school. Um, I went down there with the explicit goals of cutting my teeth in the Southern Alps of New Zealand, which are not one of the tallest mountain ranges in the world, but certainly one of the kind of, shall we call it rowdiest. And, um, and then I was, and then I was going down to Otago university to study, uh, geography, particularly as it as, as it applies to hydrology, glaciology, and alpine geomorphology. And so I, so at that point I really was kind of launching, you know, sort of out of the nest, if you will, of, you know, you know, having graduated high school and, uh, and my, all, all of my, all like everything I was doing was pointed pointed at climbing and pointed at the mountains, and I really let myself be fully absorbed by climbing for many years. Uh, when I graduated from university, I I started going on expeditions. I pretty immediately went to Kyrgyzstan and started going to Alaska a lot. I went down to Patagonia, and and at that point in time, I was going on I was going on a lot of trips. I was going on uh, two to four expeditions a year. And, uh, and then I was, uh, climbing whenever I wasn't doing that. Um, I guess I, I did have to work of course, but, uh, but I was doing, <laughs> I was doing that as little as possible. And, and I pretty quickly right. found myself in a position where I was working as a, uh, as a geophysicist on, um, on contracts, primarily in East Africa and in Nevada, where I was looking for rare earth, um, minerals, and I would go out on, the, on those on those jobs for about four months out of the year, which left me the rest of the year to go climbing, which was this really, really amazing space and time. Um, I was very focused. I was traveling constantly. I was climbing all the time. I was going and doing all these things. And uh, I mean, it was it was lovely. But, you know, as as a as somebody with a scientific background um, and somebody who pays attention, which is kind of what you need to do in the mountains in order to survive, you know, I was seeing all these changes taking place and, and I knew exactly 
what what they were. I knew I knew I knew the signs of of global warming, of climate change. You know, I knew from my from my educational background as well as you know a lot of material I had been exposed to that you know I knew what was going on. And and it was it was interesting because when I was younger, it was it was pretty easy to ignore because I was just so infatuated with climbing. But but as I as I kind of moved. Um, further into my career, as I started talking to more people, as I, um, and, and to be honestly, to be honest, as I matured, um, I, I started feeling like this was something I needed to figure out kind of how to, how to rectify the, um, impact I was having and learn more about how I could be creating positive impact with the work I was doing and with the platform that I was kind of developing as an athlete and that kind of thing. So about four years ago, I, I started working with Protect Our Winners and um, and started kind of like started on that advocacy journey. And they were the ones who really mentored me into that space. And subsequently, I joined the board of the American Alpine Club, um, which I'm still on today. And I sit on the policy committee there and do a lot of policy work with the club. Um, which we'll be talking about, and uh, and I don't I don't do any work directly with the Access Fund, but um, but I do I do hang out with you guys a lot, and I think it's worth noting that that uh, one of my kind of mentors and kind of using your voice is Joe Salvatero, who is uh, your is, I think he's your director of land acquisition, and Joe and I have been is that is that did I get his title right? Some something close to that, okay. yeah. He's He's, he's, he's one of the guys over there crushing, crushing with the access fund and has been for a long time. And he and I actually went to high school together and have been, have been dear, dear friends for a long time. So, so I'm, so I've been, I've been pretty intimate with what the access fund is doing as well. So, and it's, it's been really cool to kind of find, find my voice and build community that is uh, not only focused on, you know, trying the hardest routes on the, on the biggest mountains, um, you know, maintaining that while also maintaining that, that space for myself and that community, but also kind of finding these adjacent communities that are focused on how we can use climbing as a metaphor in order to make the world a better place. And that's really turned into a lot of what I do these days. No, that's awesome. So prior to joining POW, you were already like an athlete for OR. Yeah, so I've been, I've been, uh, I've been so, something akin to a professional athlete for about ten years now. Um, I mean, there's a whole, okay. there's a whole spectrum there of, you know, how much money or how many jackets do you get? But, um, but, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> it's like OR has been supporting my supporting my expeditions for ten or eleven years now, and um, so is, so is Joel Bo Exped's been supporting me for a long time, and and now I, yeah. I work with Petzl and. Volet and Scarpa and a, and a host of other brands. Oh yeah. Yeah. Very well known brands. So your transition or your just growth from a professional athlete into a, like a professional advocate, was that something you decided to kind of take on yourself or were these companies starting to move in that direction, recognize what was going on? Like, Hey, Hey Graham or any other athlete on these teams, like, Hey, we need you guys to maybe start speaking up about this. Um, you know, that's, that's a, that's a good question. I, I don't know that I've had a lot of pressure from brands to work on this stuff, um, but they've certainly been super supportive of it. And you know, one one thing that has been that we that we haven't talked about that has been really influential is that I, when I I decided to kind of divest myself from the uh, 
kind of geology space and pivoted that work into filmmaking, which sounds like a totally different thing, but film production and project management of like big geo projects have a lot of similarities. The kind of building blocks are pretty similar and that was, it was pretty easy to pivot between those things. So that took me into a space of storytelling and thinking about really thinking about my story and particularly my, my business partner now at, uh, Bedrock Filmworks, which I run, uh, Jim Aikman, he's been really a really powerful force in my life in terms of like understanding story and understanding the story of, of stories of others as well as myself and kind of thinking about what is my story, what do I want my story to be and that kind of thing. And uh, you know, it's like when you think about your story, you think about your influence, you think about the world around you and how you're affecting it. And that's that that really brings brings a lot of these things to the surface. And then somebody else who has been really influential for me in the space is Brody Levin, who's a, who's a skier um, who I think, I think the access fund has worked with quite a bit. I think he's been out to some of the climb the hill events and things like that, but, uh, Mm -hmm. but he's, he's a dear, dear friend and somebody who's been super vocal. And he was kind of one of the original people who sort of nudged me towards the, uh, towards working with POW and, uh, subsequently there have been a lot of folks who have, who have really kind of taken me in and, and been great examples and very instructive with how to get at that stuff. And that includes, uh, Caroline Gleick, that includes, uh, Conrad Anchor, and then the whole team over at POW who have really, really been, uh, like very patient with me as I, as I figure, figure this stuff out. And that's something that I'm trying to do more and more is kind of pass that on and mentoring others into this space because there's so many so many, so many folks in my community have been so patient and kind with me as I've kind of stumbled my way into this advocacy space, which is, which is challenging. Oh yeah. It's, it's not easy. There's a, there's a ton of learn, a big learning curve. I mean, I still feel like I'm very well on that curve and probably always will be. It's always something new to learn. That's, um, that's how this works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So is there any like specific responsibilities that power has asked of you to do, uh, not on a daily basis, but just, uh, throughout the year? Yeah, so so I work as essentially the captain of the PAL climb team, and um, and they actually have me have me on 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 a small contract these days to do uh, to be kind of helping them with how how I like running that team, and then kind of making sure that team interfaces with the rest of the organization, and really broadening the scope of PAL from you know originally in 2007 when it was launched, it was skiers and snowboarders, and it's expanded now to uh into the trail space into the climb space and into a few other sports as well and so i i'm i'm really in the role of helping build climbing authentically into the pow brand and uh which has been really really cool i mean that's coming back to that idea of story that's what it's all about and how do we like how does the climbing story relate to climate policy and uh and how do we do that authentically and and clearly Awesome. I didn't realize like you're like the captain of the Powell Climb team. <laughs> yeah. It's it's been it's been really cool to be able to interface directly with that with that um with with the with the Pow but kind of the you know the Boulder the Boulder team. Um Pow being based in Boulder. Um I guess they're I guess are we based anywhere these days? But um but yes. <laughs> awesome. Right on. So yeah, in addition to POW, you've attended, you've been a part of the Climate Hill events, which is a, a co-convening event between Access Fund and the American Alpine Club. Mm-hmm. How many years have you been doing that? You know, I think I was actually doing the math on this before. Was I've been to DC a few times, but I think it, I think a couple of those times have been with 
protect our winners. And I think I've only actually been to climb the hill once. Um, but I've been deeply involved a number of times, including this year, um, as a, as a board member. So helping, helping to kind of like working with the policy team to figure out kind of what our objectives are working with, uh, you know, kind of what the, what the framework for those events look like and things like that, which has been, which has been really powerful. Gotcha. Okay. So what was your experience when you went to the event? Was that last year you went? Yes, I was there. Oh gosh. Yeah, that was last year. Um, okay. So uh, yeah, I, I think that for me going and spending time in DC is, is a, is fascinating. Um, kind of getting an idea for what, how, how things work over there. Um, and it also, you know, it's, it feels like us being there as climbing athletes um, or as outdoor sports athletes is, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty disruptive. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's really interesting because the community in DC is a community that spends a lot of time under air conditioning, spends a lot of time, you know, in kind of within, within these halls of government that, that have, you know, have HVAC systems. They don't, they don't experience, uh, <laughs> they don't experience rises in temperature or increased rainfall or decreased rainfall or whatever, um, in the same way that we do. And to be able to show up as, you know, notable parts of the community and share our experiences with these spaces and how they're affecting us and our communities and our industries is really powerful. And it's honestly a perspective that I think a lot of, a lot of these lawmakers don't have, which is, um, which is, which is kind of, kind of a shame. And it's, I think it's really important that we show up and, and share with them what's, what's going on in these, in these wild spaces. And I think that, you know, there's, there's actually another program that the American Alpine club runs. And I think, I think the access fund might be part of this as well, but the, uh, so that's, we have climb the hill, which is where we take the kind of climbing community to DC, but then there's the hill to crag series where we actually work on getting some of these lawmakers out into, into the elements and take them climbing and take them, take them, you know, out bouldering or ice climbing or whatever, which, um, which is just as powerful being able to, you know, a show up in DC and say, here's what we're seeing. And then being able to take them from DC into these wild spaces, say, Hey, here's why this matters to us. Here's why this is an amazing thing that you should be aware of. And here is how it is being affected by the policies that you're working on. And this is why we need you to be working on, you know, better, better management of our public lands on uh, looking at green energy economies and understanding like what climate change is, how it affects our country and what we can do about it. I don't think I was familiar with the Hilda Craig. That's really cool. It's, it's, um, pretty, it's pretty sweet. Yeah, that's that's the winning formula in my eyes. I mean, you go there, you 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 close that that uh, storytelling gap by sharing your story, sharing experiences. When I had Tommy Caldwell on a few months ago, he says, you know, he brings in pictures of wolves from the from Anwar and and things of that nature, and and that's the the congressional representatives want to talk about that. They're like, what? Like this is this is incredible, yeah. and then you connect that bring that full circle by putting them out there. I mean, how can anyone say no to that? I, I, I feel, I feel the same way. I think it's a really powerful formula. And I think that a really um, kind of like 
thinking about this with a broader audience that um, than just the folks who go to you know go to DC for these trips. Um, you know, something something that I think uh, works really well in DC is the fact that we have these amazing stories of of climbing of going and trying these things that have never been done before or or are you know audacious or whatever and then and then the uh and then these stories of climate or um environmental policy are are built into those stories of climbing um they're not there's no separation our stories as climbers are very useful tools for talking about these issues that are so important to us on the policy front and so um so you know it's it's really easy for us to go in there and tell these stories that are um inspirational and interesting and fun to listen to and then relate those to uh in my case primarily on climate and that's something that you know it's really easy to say oh yeah like you know graham has that or tommy has that or whoever but um but as climbers that's that's a tool that we all have um any of us in the community who goes and climbs is has stories that directly relate to these amazing spaces that we want to protect and the climate that we want to protect. And that's a tool that, you know, we can of course use with lawmakers in, in DC or on the state level or on the local level, but it's also something we can use within our community. And as we look at kind of helping those around us in the climate community and communities adjacent to them and with family members, as we, as we explain to them why these things matter and why people should give a shit, why people should go vote, why people should call their reps, you know, kind of whatever the, the actionable that we're guiding people towards. Um, we all have this kind of superpower that is our story as a climber. And, uh, and so that, that kind of, that's the model we's for climb the hill, which is awesome. Um, but that's something that every climber has. That is a, that is a tool that we can all get at and means that our community as a whole has potential to be hyper effective on these issues, which is really, which is really exciting for me. That's incredibly exciting. And you, I think you hit the nail right on the head. I feel, you feel like a superhero sometimes when you're actually out there climbing. Now you can use this kind of superpower, like you just mentioned. I think that was a great word to describe it to, to make this influence. That's amazing. So what are you taking into this year's event? The Climate Hill is next week. Uh, I got some, I got my hands in, in that event a little bit, helping out with the, with one of the workshops. So what do you got going on on your docket this year? So uh, this year, I'm I'm not going to be in any of the meetings. That I don't think. Um, who knows? They may they may wrangle me in last minute. But <laughs> I'm uh, I'm actually doing a lot of work, kind of from the board side of things, with uh, with helping people um, with kind of a how to communicate with lawmakers and their staffers, um, not only. Uh, kind of in general using your story and here's kind of, you know, here's how I get at it. But also I've been doing a lot of work kind of in this virtual space. So it's, it's going to be a little bit of instruction about, you know, how to, you know, kind of a, how to get at these meetings, um, you know, on zoom or whatever. And then also just kind of how to make yourself look a little, just a little more professional. There are kind of some, just some sort of tips and tricks for, you know, kind of showing, showing up a little better, um, at, at these meetings. And so that's, that's kind of my role, my role this year, um, which is, which is, which is great. And I think that, you know, it's, uh, as, as I think you stated, and as we all might assume these, instead of actually going to DC this year, um, the team is going to be 
doing all of these events from home, which seems seems super lame, but it's actually kind of amazing because it means a we can bring a lot more people out. B um, the the footprint is way smaller. And that's not only in terms of our carbon footprint, because we're not having to fly people to DC, but also, I mean, normally when I go to DC, like say lobby days on a, you know, Wednesday, it's going to, you know, flying from Bend, I'm going to take the, take the red eye to Chicago. That'll get me there on like Tuesday, you know, mid morning, kind of go there, get my ducks in a row, uh, go lobby all day, Wednesday, fly back on, fly back on Thursday, and then, you know, I like sort of have sort of have Friday, but I'm kind of a waste of space at that point. So <laughs> it like pretty much takes a week of my time to go to go do this. And like, it's absolutely worth it. But I did a, um, a congressional address a couple of months ago and, you know, I just put my suit on and at like, you know, in the mid morning, drank a bunch of coffee and plopped down in front of my computer with, you know, some reasonable lighting, did a con- congressional address and then was, you know, back to back to like training in the garage by the early afternoon. And so, the, so awesome. it's pretty. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, it just allows us to be more effective. It reduces our travel. Um, it's something it's something that I'm pretty excited about. Um, and I think I think we'll, I, I imagine we'll probably incorporate into the climb the hill program moving forward. Um, you know, I, you know, when we're able, we'll send people to D.C., obviously. But I think we can increase our impact by really engaging with this digital space, which is pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. There's there's a silver lining in something that's a little advantageous to it. We had a had a little uh, pre-planning meeting for a workshop that's going to happen next week. And and uh, Eric Murdoch, the policy director from the Access Fund, is saying there's well over 100 land managers pre-registered for one of the workshops. And that's like the highest number they've ever had of people engaging. It's like because yeah, more people just have access to it, not have to go there in person. So it will be successful in the end for sure. I mean, that's badass. That's democratization of the advocacy process, which is exactly mm-hmm. what we need in this country. <laughs> right. No, 100%. 100%. So with that being said, I think that's a great segue into uh, topic number two. So a quote that you had uh, that relates to this topic goes like this. We're also learning that the grit and determination we apply towards climbing, skiing, riding, and running is directly transferable to doing this hard work to making the world a better place. And participation just sits at the core of activism, plain and simple. This is what what makes activism successful. So that's what I want to jump into here. Despite the dumpster fire that has been 2020, we have undoubtedly had some very large successes. So could you run us through a few of these that's happened? I mean, one dates to, uh, to last year, but last February um, mm-hmm. with the John D. Dingle Conservation Management and Recreation Act, otherwise known as the Natural Resources Management Act, otherwise known as the Giant Public Lands Package that passed last year. And then uh, more recently, the Great American Outdoors Act and then the cancellation of the, Moil- of the Moab oil and gas leases. Could you give us a broad brushstroke over a few of those? We've had a number of years where we've been really focused on our public lands. It's something that the the outdoor community in general has really we've really come together to focus on protecting to protecting our land, protecting these places that we care about. And uh, and I've been really excited about each of these each of these um, uh, pieces of policy um, because I think that a lot of our focus over the last few years has been on maintaining the borders of, of our, of our different, um, 
uh, of our of our different kind of like sections of public land. I mean, particularly the the Bears Ears National Monument has been a huge fight. Um, mm-hmm. But as as we look at as we look at these um, different acts, um, the Natural Resources Management Act, the Great American Outdoors Act, and the uh, Moab Oil and Gas leases, we're really looking at rather than protecting the borders, um, we're really looking at, at maintaining the infrastructure and protecting those spaces kind of within those borders. And that's something, that's something really, really, really important. And uh, particularly as we look at the Moab oil and gas leases, you know, something, something that is really interesting that I think a lot of people don't know is so uh, for me, uh, climate is kind of where a lot of my policy is focused. And one of our, one of our policy pillars at POW is public lands, which seems, seems a little, little bit kind of off base, but as if we look at where emissions in the United States are coming from, just under a quarter of emissions in the United States are coming off of our public lands. And I'll I'll say that again, because it's, it's like, a quarter of the emissions from our country are coming are coming off of these places that we, you know, hypothetically as citizens have a say in what goes on there. And most of that is coming from leases on that's on that space, on that land that we collectively as the citizenry own. So us being able to work on kind of flexing our muscles to keep oil and gas leases off of those lands is really exciting because that is us protecting our lands and that is also us protecting our climate. So this so this work to kind of manage what is going on inside of those boundaries is imperative and these wins are are huge um and and really really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's very on base with with that POW pillar um these, the passing of these legis- pieces of legislation absolutely have the kind of a indirect effect on our climate, of course. And I think, to correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like climate policy and advocacy is just this long kind of invisible marathon that you are running constantly. And things seem to move a little bit slower compared to these public lands policies. Is Would you, would you concur with that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the public land policy is—it's a little more tangible, right? It's something mm-hmm, where right. it's you know you can like uh, it's easier to define wins, you know. In, in the climate space, it's it's tricky because we're fighting we're fighting further, kind of baking we're we're fighting the uh, like baking more change into the cake, but there's already a lot of change that's baked in. So it's not like we're going to say, we're going to pass a bill and say, Oh great. Now the, now the air is clean and the the globe is going to stop warming. Um, Mm -hmm. That's not, that's, that's not how this works. Um, So having, so I think that, you know, kind of looking at, you know, I I really see these successes in the, uh, in the public land space as, as tangible, as really exciting, as also very important but they are also they also do not represent a finish line. They represent a you know a, like on this journey, like you said, as we work on protecting our environment and our climate, we are on a journey that we are going to have to participate in for the rest of our lives. And realistically, you know, our children will have to participate in for their whole lives. And we need to celebrate our successes, such as these uh, such as these things that you brought up. But we need to utilize those successes not as a reason to say okay cool now we can be done but instead say great this shit works let's keep going 
Bam, nailed it. Isn't it? Is it true that you know you you really emphasize the quarter of our emissions come from our public lands? Is it true that if the public if our public lands were its own country, it would be within like top ten emissions uh, in the world or something like that? Yeah, I think it's I think it's number five. Um, number five. And yeah. I think I think at least for my part, that data is from like. 18, 2018 so uh it's 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 aging a little bit but um i don't suspect it's actually changed that much either <laughs> yeah just in the last couple of years probably not um but just like we talked about with climbing the hill earlier i mean there's climbers are climbers are there in dc wearing the suit and ties putting the work in to ensure that these things and places we value are looked after and of course the skiers the paddlers the hunters and anglers are doing the same thing and it dawned on me just a few a few months ago i was thinking about it i'm like yeah holy shit there are climbers in dc doing this work i mean this the sport has come so far from living in the dirt people still do that of course but living in the dirt eating cans of of cat food to going to dc that, that's that's incredible to me that's what makes these things successful i i couldn't couldn't agree more and i mean it's interesting because that's i mean for me that's i'm 34 i've been climbing for about just 19 or 20 years and all like i feel like most of that uh transformation from a community that is uh you know really not focused on policy at all um, to a community that is learning to flex its muscles and craft change. Um, that's, that's really all taking place during my time climbing, which is, which is a pretty remarkable, um, given that that's not actually that much time. And our, our community is, is really learned its strength and it's really, it's really, uh, it's, it's, it's learning how to, how to let its voice be heard. It's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And of course, not everyone can make it to DC. People don't have those resources or opportunities. So what would you, what would you say the, the best way for people to engage is, is it just writing or calling your representatives? Is it getting on social media and making these issues uh, be more visible? What would be your number one recommendation for those folks who can't go to DC? Yeah. I mean, uh, in, in our current political climate, um, and I think we're going to talk about this at length here in a minute, but voting is number is number one. And, um, and as we look at, um, as we look at our personal votes, that is of course important, but also um, looking at phone banking and making sure that our community and communities adjacent to adjacent to them show up. Um, mm-hmm. We're kind of in this amazing moment where, um, well, I'll, we'll talk about voting in a minute, but um, in terms of, you know, in terms of speaking up, in terms of um, in terms of how to kind of get at these specific issues, I think that thinking about our personal stories and how they relate, using them as a tool and to communicate with our communities, our families and our representatives is really powerful. Um, so call your reps, tell them who you are, tell them why you why you give a damn and i think that you know two two kind of components to this that i think are really interesting that have uh created a lot of success or allowed for a lot of success are the outdoor recreation community and the outdoor recreation in industry um coming together um and realizing that uh the outdoor rec economy is Oh man, I, I should have looked this up and I maybe haven't had, drank enough coffee this morning just to remember the exact number. But I think we're like, do you remember the number of like how big the outdoor rec, outdoor rec economy is? 
887 billion. Yes, I was hoping you'd have that number. Uh, yes, it, that's, <laughs> so we are massive, and that means we're we're bigger than oil and gas. We're bigger than pharma, and that and what that means is that we we have muscles to flex. And the thing that we don't have is we don't have like an Exxon, like a huge corporation that puts tons of money into lobbying um, in DC. And what and how we combat that is we come together. We we join together. Um, and that's on the industrial side or on the, yeah, on the, on the outdoor, uh, rec economy side. And as we look at the community, you know, we have like, uh, what, what are we calling it these days? I think it's like 40 million, um, people who are outdoor recreationalists in the United States. Um, what we're referring to at POW as the outdoor, the outdoor state. Um, yep. and as, as we, as we look at that, we have a lot of people that are, our people that we can communicate with. And if we engage and we get those individuals to vote, if we get them to call their reps, if we get them to, you know, show up at, uh, you know, show up at events, then we can, we can really, we can really get shit done. We can really, we can really create change in this country. And we are not a small sidelined part of the industry or a small sidelined part of the community. We are in fact a big, powerful user group that, uh, that can, that can work together in order to create the change that we that we desperately need in this country, which is which is really exciting. That kind of realization of power, which is something that I feel like a lot of the outdoor community is kind of going through right now, and uh, it's just something we got to keep keep our foot on the gas and keep moving forward with. Yep, absolutely. I mean, you can't argue with those numbers. I mean, that's that's a large, large part of our of our country's GDP. And it wasn't didn't Obama pass something uh, a handful of years back that was. That was ensuring that the outdoor space and our industry is included in the GDP. I forget what that was called, but I believe something like that happened. Yeah, so that was that was kind of what that was what kind of instigated all this. And uh, gosh, um, I mean, back in back in easier easier times, <laughs> I don't remember the name of, yeah. of of what that that what that accounting was called. But it was but yes, um, it was kind of a re restructuring of how we look at GDP and and then incorporated the outdoor rec economy into it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Very powerful. No doubt. All right. Vote. Quote. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> quote here is, how do I take the small soapbox provided to me by an award for a climb with three other privileged cisgender men and use it as a tool to combat these inequities and injustices? You have made a very concerted effort through your social media to engage people to get involved every day and ultimately vote here in just over a month, about a month and a half. All of your recent posts have been very creative and you always tie it back to having people do their part. I want to know like, where's this creativity? I mean, you're all, you're, you're a very creative person being a filmmaker, but man, I'd like all these posts have been very unique, very different from each other. And you always tie it back to climbing and how everyone can make a difference. Where's this creativity coming from? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, I mean, I guess that uh, I've been, you know, I've had, I've had a lot more time recently um than i than i you know generally do um but and i've been i've been using a lot of that to read and i guess i guess i'm always reading a lot but but i i've been kind of learning to take the things i'm reading to take the things i'm engaging with and better kind of um better kind of like blend them with my own story and what what i think needs to be shared and in many ways voting is 
this kind of amazing thing that's that's kind of easy like uh, lots of times you know with climate it's it's kind of tricky because it's this there's no silver bullet um and there you know i am very much an imperfect advocate advocating for climate policy um as somebody who travels travels a lot but i do do feel strongly that um you know personal action is not how we fix this while we should certainly live in intentional lives, examined lives, that uh, that the policy and um, systemic change and economic incentivization is how we actually drive the change that we need in this country. And uh, and so so so, you know, climate is this complex thing and it's kind of hard to get at. But voting is really easy to get at. Um, it's a simple task. It is there is there is almost nothing more American than than letting your voice be heard and showing up at the uh, at the ballot box. Mm-hmm. And um and it's also we're in this kind of amazing moment in time where we have all these pressing issues that are super top of mind, whether that's social justice or public lands or climate or economic inequality or healthcare. And for all of these, um, no- normally we're all kind of competing, but we're in this amazing moment in time where the number one goal for all of these different issues the, number, the thing that matters most for the next, what are we at, like 45 days, um, is is voting. That is the thing that we need to do. It is the number one thing that matters. Like policy, policy work is, of course, important, but really everybody has pivoted away from specific policy and pivoted towards getting out the vote. And and so it's meant that we're we're kind of in this amazing moment in time where we have this very simple action that we can take that can affect change and it's not just it's not picking and choosing between issues it is like changing everything that we need and so um so i guess that maybe the storytelling to kind of get back to your question of like how have i been putting all this together i guess maybe it's just been a little easier because because things are so so simple right now it is so it is so cut and dry and uh there's you know there's none of this usual kind of complexity instead instead it's just like get out the vote show up get your community to show up and specifically if you know people who are in battleground states and districts get them to vote because their vote particularly matters a lot Mm -hmm. okay a couple questions uh coming off what you just said there you said you're an imperfect advocate and so am i so is the person next to me. So is the person next to you. I mean, we're not, we, we all travel, we all drive to get to where we need to go and, you know, to climb, ski, whatever. And I just never have seen such perfection demanded of climate activists. <laughs> if, you, if you if you drive a diesel, if you drive a, a gas powered car or fly in an airplane, you're a hypocrite. And I just, I think that's silly. Like you, no one expects anyone to be perfect except when it comes to this. I mean, what, what's your reaction to that? Well, okay. So what what I'm going to get out for you here is um I I I just pulled this up on my screen here. Um, so this is this is a short section from a congressional testimony that I did on behalf of Protector Winters back in back in June. Uh, if anybody needs time stop, June June 2020. Um, and I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this and tried to kind of condense it down into my specific feelings on imperfect advocacy. So I'm just is it okay if I just read this to you? Go for it. 
So in our current system, we are all imperfect when it comes to climate. And we are finding time and time again that in order to curb emissions, it is not a change in personal actions that is going to move the needle. In fact, what we need is a systemic change to our industries, to our methods for collecting and generating power, and how we transport ourselves and our goods. As high-profile athletes lobbying for climate policy, we demonstrate that imperfect advocacy is not only okay, but it is imperative. Many of those in our communities and in those adjacent to them get hung up on the idea of imperfect advocacy. And just like we share with these communities what is possible in climbing or skiing, things that may have seemed impossible in the past, we are showing them that imperfect advocacy is not only okay, but it is vital. And without it, our only other choice is to sit back and watch the world burn. Whew. Nailed it. <laughs> I worked really hard on that one. Yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> Thanks. Um, but yeah, I think, that, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's kind of flipping that narrative from, oh, you're an imperfect advocate to, hey, like, I am just a clear, I'm like a very clear example of an imperfect advocate. But, but anybody who is, who is worried about climate is an imperfect advocate. And the only real option that we have to not be an imperfect advocate is to, you know, like live in a house with no electricity and no heating and like live out of uh, our vegetable patch in the backyard, which um, full disclosure sounds great a lot of days, but <laughs> is a very ineffective space from which to get anything done outside of your own personal sphere of influence. Mm -hmm. So, um, so it's like, you know, so what, so the goal that we're looking at here is not, um, is not forcing everybody into that space, forcing everybody into the space where we no longer use, um, you know, no longer use power. Um, the, the goal is that instead of, if I want to go to the Canadian Rockies this winter, me having to get in my car and fill with gas and drive up there and, and like fill with gas a couple more times and then, and then use a bunch of gas to, to, uh, uh, you know, heat the, heat the place where I'm staying and then drive back down and have that, you know, have a reasonable carbon footprint. What I want instead is to be, um, or what our goal is, what the vision is, is for me to have an EV that an electronic vehicle that is plugged in here at my house, have my house running on electricity from a grid that is, that is coming from renewables from solar or from wind and be able and then get in my car, drive it part way plug it, plug it in, you know, maybe in a, maybe somewhere in Idaho, have that be, you know, plug it into still a grid that is running off of renewables, you know, drive to wherever I'm going and then have that, and then have the place where I'm staying be heated, utilizing power that is coming from renewables and drive back. And so be able to go on that trip. That's normally like, Oh, you have a big carbon footprint. How can you do that? And have that be something that is carbon neutral or carbon efficient. And, and the same goes for air travel. I mean, if you look at the reporting going on right now on experimenting with new airplanes and efficient air travel, there's all sorts of exciting technology, but there's just no incentivization for us to actually be developing that tech. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, so it's really about like utilizing these tools that we have as humans, where we, where we move forward, where we innovate and we, we find solutions that allow us to do the things that we want to do, the things that if, you know, if I were to look at climbing and say, is it something I want to do or is it something I need to do? It's pretty, pretty close to a need. Um, you know, it's something that I rely on and, um, and be able to do those things in a carbon efficient way. And will you know, if we, install a bunch of EV stations and put a whole bunch more wind power and solar power in and, and all that, like, will that have follow-up problems that we'll have to solve? Yes, of course. And we will utilize the same 
methodology of problem solving to get through those problems as well. But right now we're like kind of, we're, we're, we're stalled out. We're like stuck on coal and we're stuck on gas and we just need to innovate our way away from the combustion engine. And we need to innovate our ways way into new technologies that allow us to do all these things that we want to do and we need to do, but do them without burning a whole bunch of carbon, uh, I guess a whole bunch of fossil fuels. Right, right. Well, yeah, creativity and innovation sits at the core of all of that as well. And we've yeah. always created, got creative and created our way out of sticky situations. So I think it's just a matter totally. of time and more creativity and, and dedication. Um, and I think a lot of folks, uh, back to the voting thing, just a lot of folks suffer from the I don't matter syndrome or my vote doesn't matter syndrome. I, my, yep. my reaction to that is like, yeah, you're one individual vote probably is going to make a difference but if your friend and their friend and their friend all think the same way that's a large collective of people thinking the same way but mm-hmm. if you change that you flip that and say my individual vote matters that's just going to snowball from there and I mean, have you have you had people say that to you or what would your what would your reaction be to that yeah, I mean, like that kind of comes back to the outdoor state, the idea that we need to vote together as a voting bloc. We are we are very powerful. And I think also um, it's worth noting that we're talking a lot about voter suppression in the United States right now. We're talking mm-hmm. a lot about people not being able to vote. And the idea that our vote doesn't matter is a, is a form of psychological voter suppression. Mm-hmm. And um, and that is that is a narrative that you are that that people are being fed so that they don't vote and to kind of utilize a, a line from Mario Molina, our um, uh, executive director over at POW that, you know, we're talking a lot about how the system is broken in the United States and let's change that narrative from broken to this system is under a lot of stress and, and, you know, and it will break eventually if we don't de-stress it, but how do you de-stress a, representative democracy you de-stress it with engagement from the citizenry and that mean that that means people showing up to vote and that also is allows us to better compete with these very loud voices coming from corporations right now um the way that we that we you know work work around that the way that we that we make our voices louder than uh than those corporations that are you know we're all worried about having a big big influence on washington right now um we do that by more people showing up more people voting more people giving a shit simple very simple it, 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 it is kind of simple yeah <laughs> it is it is like it's yeah it's like it's, it's that easy like yeah just show up just do it yeah just do it all right yeah. All right. Well, to uh, kind of close things out here, I want to put a plug in for your podcast that I honestly just recently learned about, and it's partnered up. You're doing it for REI. It's all about wildfires. I mean, you couldn't be more appropriate timing right now with all that. You want to give us a little background on how that got going? Yeah. Yeah. So this is a this is a show that we did last year for REI. Um, it's called REI Presents Wildfire. Um, I, I host it with my business partner and dear friend Jim Aikman. Uh, he's over in he's over in Portland, and um, and it's it's utilizing a narrative uh, a story from the Columbia River Gorge just outside of Portland and a particularly destructive wildfire that took place there, um, and utilizing that story thread as a jumping off point to talk about fire in forests in the West, um, how we deal with them, how, mistakes that we're making, 
things that we can be learning. And it's, it's really, it's really, uh, it's, it's really investigative journalism on, on fires in the West and how we can, how we can be doing better. And, um, you know, it looks at, uh, indigenous methodologies that we could be leaning into. It looks at, uh, policy policy that we can be getting at it looks at the history of these forests um and it was it was really really cool to put it together and uh and it's it's i mean um it's it's nice it's it's sad that it's still exceptionally relevant considering that we have like you know over a million acres burning in oregon but uh but um it's also, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to have something to point people towards if they want answers as to like what the hell is going on and what can we do about it? Yeah. Awesome. We'll make sure to link that up. So everyone uh, has a chance to check that out. Any, uh, any future films on the docket? Yeah, we're actually working on a film right now. Um, about, I guess Jim's, Jim's directing it. Um, I'm trying to stay out as much out of it as I can because it's about me. Um, and, and I've, <laughs> I've directed, I've directed a couple of films about myself and yeah. it's something I uh, really don't want to do anymore. Um, <laughs> but, uh, not because I don't like my story being told. I just, it's really nice when somebody else has, you know, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And outside, an outside perspective is important. Right. And, um, so, uh, uh, that's, it's, it's, it's called the imperfect advocate. Um, we're working on it with protector winners and it's, it's really diving into my journey as an imperfect advocate and, um, and kind of dealing, dealing with that, um, you know, dealing with that kind of, uh, uh, potential hypocrisy and kind of applying the bravery of climbing towards policy. That sounds so cool. When's that uh, a slated date for that, or is that kind of too much inside baseball there? Oh no, I think uh, I think that's going to come out uh, middle of October. Um, just cool. to give everybody a you know a final little uh, little kick in the kick in the bum to go to go make sure and vote. <laughs> yeah, that's very strategic timing for sure. Uh, are, you, <laughs> are you reading, listening, watching anything that's related to what we've talked about today that you could recommend for the listeners? Yeah, let's see. Um, in terms of things that I am reading right now, um, I'm gonna I'm going to uh, just pull up what I've actually been listening to, or sorry, uh, what I've been what I've been reading. There's one book in particular that I'd love to bring up that is called. I'm just grabbing the title so I don't so I don't get it incorrect. So it's called Un Unbound. It's by Heather Bushi and. Uh, how inequality constricts our economy and what we can do about it. So that's me really trying to, I've been taking a pretty deep, deep dive on the equity and inclusion work. So that's a, that's a pretty cool um, discussion of how our economy needs us to deal with inequality in order for it to be successful. And this gal, um, Heather Bushi is a, um, is an economist who, if I'm not mistaken, was slated to be uh, one of uh, Hillary Clinton's political advisors mm. um, or, or economic advisors, but um, but of course is now writing because Hillary didn't win. And uh, and then I've been reading an, uh, another book called Climate: A New Story by Charles Ice Ice uh, as I Einstein uh, I I Einstein E I S E N T I E N and uh, and it's a really interesting discussion of kind of a more holistic look at climate and what needs to be done and how we get it done and a lot of, kind of some of it is 
social discussion. Some of it is, um, some of it's kind of a broader ecological discussion and that's, that's been something I've been really enjoying. And then, uh, and then finally a, a book that, um, I have read a couple of times and am really, um, really, I, I recommend it to people all the time. So, um, people have probably heard me recommend it before, but it's called harvest the vote. Uh, it's by Jane Klebe. And it's really, it's really a investigation into how to effectively break down the divides that the partisan divides in our country and find middle ground and effectively communicate. And so it's all about her experiences, like learning how to kind of communicate across the aisle. And as I think about, you know, where we're at with this country, with how divided we are, but we also need to find middle ground. We also need to make sure that everybody is included. And that's that uh, moving away from that has really gotten us into uh, a pretty sticky spot. And that's something we need to be very cognizant of is, is how not only to move into a space where we look after um, you know, our neighbors in terms of social, social equity, but also how we, how we generally are listening to, uh, listening to everybody in this country and making sure that everybody's taken care of. All right. Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, I'll check those out and link those up. Um, I'm also, I'm, also, I'm also rereading Dune because the new movie is coming out. Dune? I'm, uh, uh, Dune, the, Dune, the classic sci-fi. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> that's, just, that's, just a fun, that's just a fun one. Oh, yeah. You got it. You got to have fun. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I've been like just diving deep into, into uh, public lands history and uh, where we've been, how we are, not how we're getting now. And I just started reading Chris, yeah, Chris Kalman's book as above, so below, just for fun too. So, oh um, man, yeah, that's a bit. yeah. Chris, Chris did an amazing job, amazing for job sure. with that. Not, not light reading, no, <laughs> <laughs> for sure, exceptional. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, any final remarks you'd like to leave the listeners with? Um, you know, I think that the uh, the main the main thing is that. Uh, I guess, I guess, firstly, thank you for having me on the show. It is a pleasure to be here. I love talking about this stuff. And, um, and I spend a lot of time talking to people outside of the community these days and having the opportunity to speak to my people, to the climbers is something that I really appreciate. And as we look at advocacy, it is, uh, it is a huge thing. It is a huge kind of like challenging, intimidating deal. And, um, and I would encourage those who are keen to get involved, um, even if it's just like, just tickles your fancy just a little bit. Um, start small, be ready to learn, be ready to listen, make sure and look after yourself and recognize that, you know, all the metaphors like this is a, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And our goal is to incorporate this kind of advocacy this kind of understanding and this kind of communication into the rest of our lives so go at get at it with that perspective and know that starting small is the is the best way to start learning and the best way to engage with the kind of advocacy learning curve um and also the best way not to burn out all right thank you graham thanks so much for taking the time to share your experiences and insights with us i just feel smarter and, and even more inspired after having this conversation. So thank you so much for taking the time. And if any of you are feeling like your imperfections are stopping you in your tracks of speaking up or getting engaged, I really hope this conversation is giving you that peace of mind that it's okay and that should not stop you. So lean on this conversation to help get you out there. Watch Graham's short film on being an imperfect advocate to help get you out there. 
it's awesome. I mean, it's it's what you need to maybe move you across the finish line. And athletes are speaking up on these topics, and it's becoming more and more commonplace. But it doesn't take a professional athlete to do so. So as as climbers, we all have incredible, amazing stories to tell, and they could truly be the difference maker. So share your story. Don't be afraid to. And I, I bet you are able to inspire someone else. So get on out there. I got lots of info linked up in the show notes, so please take the time to check that out. I got uh, Graham's social media on there, uh, Protect Our Winters info, info and articles on some of the conservation victories that we've had over the past year, and a bunch of other links, so check them out. In the meantime, I will check you all out next month. Happy Halloween, and stay safe out there. I'll see you all soon. Take care.